This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter, and I am here today with my friend, Joy Clarkson, who is across the pond. Uh, hi, Joy. How's it going? It's going very well. I am very excited to talk with you today, Tish. I am too. I love chatting with you. I feel like every time I get to you, I, I leave feeling a little lighter and um, more contemplative and all the things that you bring to the table. So I'm excited. First, before I ask you how you're doing, uh, weather-wise and Scotland-wise and all the things, tell me what you're drinking. I saw you just take a sip of something. I am drinking. It's it's very boring, very classic for me. I'm drinking a, a cup of Yorkshire Gold tea, a little bit of sugar today because I felt that I wanted something sweet. And I have mm-hmm. to say that before I got on this conversation, I knew you were going to ask me what I was going to drink. And I always kind of want to be drinking something more interesting than tea because I feel like that's very <laughs> yeah. like par for the course for me. But it is like mm-hmm. um, 3 p.m. in the afternoon for me. So I thought it. I thought there was still some of the day left. So I probably couldn't um, start off the day with an old fashioned. So. I was like 99% sure you were going to bring Yorkshire Gold, so I'm glad you did. I have to ask, though, because um, I've done some traveling in, in that part of the world quite a bit, Ireland, England, Scotland, the whole bit. Um, people feel very strongly about their preferred brand. My daughter's mm. college roommate right now is Irish, and she was very particular about – I forget which of the brands of tea she brought. Berries? She had like – Berries Gold? It was either Berries or the other one that's big in Ireland. I forget what. Um, mm. It might have been Berries. I can't remember. But um, tell me why you like Yorkshire Gold so much. Um, I, part of it's just cause I grew up with it. Um, there mm-hmm. are different kind of grades of tea. And so Yorkshire red is, I also like Yorkshire red. It's very strong, very full bodied. Um, but so all kinds of teas will be, uh, red and then gold and gold is like the more technically the more kind of elite, um, yeah. more, uh, <laughs> nuanced leaf. So I quite like that. Um, I like that it's <laughs> strong, but with a little bit of sweetness. So it's not quite as mm-hmm. just on your tongue and acidic as red. Um, and I also like it for many uh, long personal reasons. It's actually how I ended up talking to my, who ended up being my PhD advisor the first time um, was because mm. of my enjoyment of Yorkshire Gold. So cool. how, Yorkshire Gold and I have a long personal history. Although supposedly <laughs> uh, Yorkshire Gold is better and all Yorkshire tea is better in Yorkshire because the water, it's brewed specifically to work well with the water. So that's a part gotcha. of the like regional affection for various teas is that if you get like the Scottish blend, it's supposedly brewed to to work well with like the the minerals in the Scottish water. So I actually love that about a lot of things. A lot of things we consume, food and drink, they tend to be made particularly for a region. And yes, you can enjoy them anywhere, but they tend to be better somewhere else, like Guinness and in Dublin, salsa here in Texas, mm. or, or mm. some form of that. You know. Speaking of which, well, let me say what I'm drinking first. Um, I'm drinking coffee, and I will tell you for a while we just stopped asking what we're drinking because it was like coffee or water and I got really boring as well. So I get the desire to do something interesting, (laughs) but I kind of also like the quotidian nature of just saying the same thing again and again, because I'll bet you a lot of listeners are just doing the same thing, you know, but anyway, I'm drinking coffee, but I'm doing, I don't know if you've ever had butter coffee. sounds really Mm. weird, but it's really good to put a tablespoon of butter. Yeah, Yeah. Like a tablespoon of butter and I do a little bit, well, there's like MCT oil powder, which is a whole health thing that I won't get into because it's boring, but also a a pinch of pumpkin pie spice blend just because it's got cinnamon and nutmeg and Mm. cloves and the whole thing I like. And then I just like pulse it on the blender for like 10 seconds and it tastes like a latte, but without all the sugar. And so that's what I drink whenever, yes, whenever I either want to stave off hunger for a little bit because the butter is really filling. And also it feels like a latte and a treat without going somewhere and without uh, pumping it full of sugar. So that's that. 
Uh, I have to ask you, though, you were in my neck of the woods not too long ago. Our paths didn't cross for boring transportation, holiday reasons, all the things. But I am curious, what did you enjoy in San Antonio culinarily? Oh, well, a lot of Mexican food. I think there was there was like a three day period where all but one of my meals were Mexican food. And Mm -hmm. that was that was great. Uh, So I had a lot of I noticed that just like the basic salsa is actually pretty hot compared to anything Mm -hmm. you could get. I mean, nothing's really very hot in in um, the UK except for Indian food. Um, Right. But so I enjoyed that. And it's just so much fresher. Like you can tell that it's actually from produce that, you know, uh, lived not that long ago and not that far away. Um, So we did that. And we also I also enjoyed a lot of very good fruit. and culinarily, um, those are the two main things I remember. And, and quite a few, like either very cold beers or very large margaritas. Oh my gosh, I had forgotten how yeah. big everything is in America yeah. and also specifically in Texas. Like I ordered a small mm-hmm. margarita and it was literally 16 ounces. Right. And that was a small. I know. I know. <laughs> I like, I, this is incredible. I hardly, I hardly drink anymore. But when I do order something like a margarita, I usually get a small and I usually have to split it. So yeah, it's kind of ridiculous what we do. We just kind of think bigger is better all the time without Mm. questioning it. But at least it is quality. It's not just like bigger in a, you know, like who cares about sacrificing other things. It is still Mm. really good. But um, it's funny you mentioned the Mexican food almost every day because when I married Kyle, who's from Oregon, and we just – I was constantly making tacos or some form of that, some iteration – that was kind of a realization of like having grown up here. To me, Mexican food is just food. Like mm. it's not, you it's almost don't baseline. add the adjective. It's yeah. just, you have tacos at least once a week. You probably have something else in that category of Tex-Mex or Mexican at least one more time a week. So we just have it two or three times a week and I don't think anything of it. Yeah. Uh, so way to adapt well while you're here. So you're in Scotland now as an expat, but you've lived there quite a while. Does it feel like home? Yes, I think so. Um, that's that's a yeah. good and interesting question when it comes to the question <laughs> of rootedness. Um, yeah. it, I I remember thinking that it felt like home when I realized that I could name all of the birds that I saw on my walk. Mm-hmm. And that's a silly thing, but it is it is definitely a home to me and a place that I have mm-hmm. been able to put down roots. Um, so yes, I've been here for this year. It'll be eight years. Um, so coming up in a decade. That's a long time. Yeah. 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 And it's a a place. A lot of my short life so far. (laughs) (laughs) And you have lived your short life in a lot of places, right? I mean, Mm. well, I know you, I remember first meeting you in Colorado Mm. and in the home that I feel like maybe you spent most of your growing up years in, but you've also lived in a variety of places like I have, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I, of all the siblings in my family, actually, moved the least. So we moved to Colorado, the house that you were in, we moved into, I think when I was 11 or 12. Um, So that was kind of my teen years was all there. But we also lived um, in Tennessee and in Texas. And then I went to undergrad in California. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, I talk about this in the book, but my mom will always, if someone says, where are you from? She'll, with a twinkle in her eyes, say, you know, well, we moved 16 times and six times internationally. Um, so definitely grew up kind of on the move, although a lot of it was in Colorado. So that's also a place that is home in a different yeah. way. Okay. I get it. And I think that's actually a really good dovetail into what I want to unpack about rootedness. As I mentioned earlier, that's kind of the theme of what I'm writing this month. Uh, 
both kind of the reasons why we need roots and why it's good to stay put, you know, the, a little bit of that uh, Benedictine vow of stability that we're just mm. uh, just promising to God or at least committing to God to just stay until we're supposed to be elsewhere and how that's both easy and hard to do. And I think your book, first of all, titled You Are a Tree, is apropos for that, especially in light of, I remember when you posted a tweet that went viral about us not mm. being machines. And I don't remember if you called this a tree or a garden. I feel like more like a garden, but I, perhaps it, it was a garden. A it was a garden at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then I ended up thinking about trees just because as I med meditated more on that, that's the kind of mm -hmm. more pervasive metaphor, I think, in scripture and in poetry. So I I sat down with that more specifically. But yeah, the original tweet, which was crazy. I literally, I had been not on Twitter for like six months. And then I, it was literally my first tweet back. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. I tap out. I'm <laughs> leaving again. Maybe I want to go back off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So yeah, this new book is about metaphors. So I want to ask you first about a couple of them. Tell me more about why are we trees? Why are we trees? Why are we not machines? So um, we are trees well, I want to start out by saying something, which is that we are trees and we are machines and we are not trees and we are not machines. Um, part of what I wanted to do with the book was just think about how we use language. And hmm. I think a lot of us kind of, maybe we know on some level that we use metaphors, but we're not aware all the time of how kind of systemically we use them. And I really enjoyed when I was researching for the book, reading this uh, book by um, cognitive scientists called The Metaphors We Live By and about how so much of our language is metaphorical, especially when we talk about things like um, human experiences, like love or belonging or loyalty. You know, those aren't concrete things that we can see and measure in the world. And so we reach for metaphors to describe them. Um, and then they also talk about how the metaphors we use kind of shape how we live. So if we talk about an argument as a battle, right, if you say um, that you're taking ground in your argument or um, he's advancing an argument. All that's kind of like uh, military language, right? And so if you think about argument that way, then you think about it as a fight that you're going to win. And that metaphor shapes the way the conversation progresses because that's how we kind of conceive of it and talk about it and live by it. So in my book, I wanted to think about kind of the metaphors we use to, to um, describe our lives. And I think one of those is machines and computers specifically, because we're just surrounded by them, right? We're, as we're doing this podcast, um, we are doing it through a whole matrix of machines. I have my AirPods in my ears. I have my little blue Yeti microphone. We're looking at each other through screens and computers, and I'm sure you have just as many machines. So we're surrounded by them. So it makes sense that we reach for those images as metaphors for ourselves. Um, but to get to your question of why are we trees and not computers, I think that there are more and less appropriate metaphors for um, for different things in the world. And there are better and worse metaphors to use because the kind of expectations they, sh they set shape how we live. And so if we think of ourselves as computers, um, we think of computers are created for a single purpose, which is kind of productivity. And once they're once they can't do that, they're kind of useless on some level. Mm -hmm. um, they operate best kind of individually and on their own. They're made up of replaceable parts. They operate the same way every single day. I want my computer to do that. So if I kind of begin to describe myself 
as a computer, metaphorically, if I talk about updating my friends or, you know, <laughs> adjusting or downloading information, then I'm expecting myself to be geared towards production, be able to operate the same every day, to be um, mainly valuable for what I can do or produce, and um, and to be able to do most of those things kind of self-containedly. And if I do that, the, the reason it's not an appropriate metaphor is just that humans are not like that. We actually do need other people. We are not capable of the same things every day. And most fundamentally, I think we are not created to produce or accomplish something. We are There's something valuable about, as E.E. E. Cummings puts it, a human merely being. And so I think that we are trees. The way I ended up with that was basically I just kind of wanted to think about what are other metaphors for human beings for what it looks like to flourish. And one of the most ancient metaphors is that of humans and trees. It's one of the great, um, the great coalitions throughout all of history and poetry. And so I, I stuck with that um, metaphor, especially looking at Psalm one, where it talks about mm-hmm. the, the blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of living water, um, which bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. All they do prospers. And I think there's so much about trees. We could talk more about this, but they are, they're rooted. So they require something like rootedness to thrive. They need many different forms of nourishment. Um, they have seasons. They're not the same every day. Some days they produce a lot. Sometimes some seasons they don't. And I think this is a much more appropriate metaphor for what human beings are like and what it looks like for us to flourish. Uh, so that's my very long rambly answer to why are humans trees and not machines. Um, so there you go. I also feel like a key thing for me about the connection to us being trees is this idea that we do need many things, but we don't always get all the things all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like here in Texas, we go through a drought pretty much July through September, right? Mm-hmm. And yet I'm always astonished that even as the grass gets crispy and brown, the trees stay green mm-hmm. and the leaves just stay put and they do all right. I mean, with exceptions, right? But by and large, the trees seem to be okay even during seasons of drought. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like they don't get a regular diet of all the things they need at, at regular d- intervals all year long. Yeah, that I was actually just thinking about this today. Um, I just got back a couple of days ago from a trip to Asia and we were in Hong Kong. And one of the things that struck me there um, were all the trees because there's all of these, I don't know what kinds of trees there. I need to look this up later, but there are these enormous, like, you know, hundreds of feet tall grandfatherly trees that grow up everywhere um, in the, just in the city streets. And Hong Kong is a very like crowded, have you been crowded Mm -hmm. concrete winding? Like it's not a friendly foresty place. It is tropical. Like, you know, it's a good place for trees to grow and climate, but not in the city itself. And so you'll see these trees and they will have roots uh, kind of literally stretching out on walls um, and, you know, and wrapped around lampposts. And I, as I was looking at it, I was thinking about that kind of that thing, that idea that yes, trees do need different sources of nourishment to flourish and things like that. But they're also incredibly resilient and able to thrive in places that you wouldn't expect um, and able to use resources in ways that are surprising and, um, and I was thinking, have you read how to do nothing by, I think it's Jenny Odell. Jenny Odell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she writes about that, uh, the kind of weird tree that like that the reared redwood that survived. 
and she kind of talks about be the weird tree, um, you know, that trees have this capacity to respond to their environments and to persist um, mm-hmm. for hundreds of years, even in very unfriendly places. And I think there is something about that that is also helpful to think about as a human being. Like, what does it mean to adapt and adjust and set down your roots and figure out ways to thrive, even when you're not getting all the things you need? And sometimes that means um, letting yourself be a weird tree. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really cool how trees do find a way to grow even in the most urban of places, you know, that mm. you would think the best location for a tree is some orchard or some forest, right? But I'm always astonished because I have done a fair bit of travel when I come in for uh, landing at certain what you would consider major metropolises, how green they tend to be from a bird's mm. eye view. Like London is surprisingly green, right? All the parks. Mm. And Hong Kong too. You're right. I remember like, you know, we were there and I kind of the the feeling I got was definitely a kind of a concrete jungle, but also a tropical jungle. It just felt very shaded, right? So mm. there were a lot of a lot of trees um for a city itself. And yeah, I think there's that connection between kind of I mean, it sounds so hokey. It sounds like a thing you put on a pillow or cross stitch, but uh bloom where you're planted, you know, that kind of idea mm-hmm. of like this is the life you have. Instead of mm. wishing you were on some like perfect orchard farm or in a forest, this is where God has you. So do what you can with what you have. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So like you said, this book is about metaphors. It's not just about trees, even though I love trees and we could talk about that a lot. Tell me some of the other metaphors you unpacked that you really enjoyed nerding out on and digging deep into. What was one of your favorites? Um, I think, gosh, I actually really enjoyed all of them. I don't think there was one, like there were ones that were harder to write about. So like change and creativity as birth, that was more difficult to write about. Um, but I, I loved writing about all of them. I think one of my favorite was actually um, I think the chapter title, I'm actually drawing a blank. I think the chapter title is <laughs> uh, Safety as a Castle. But it's basically mm. the idea that to thrive, to be safe, to be secure is to be high up and to be threatened and downtrodden, literally, is to be lower down. And that was one that I um, think I kind of got from reading the metaphors we live by. Um, but once I had it, I started thinking about... <clears throat> how often that language, you know, shows up. We talk about the underdog, right? Because to be down, to be under is to be threatened, to be not in a good position. We talk about being at the top of your career. Um, And then I just thought about the Psalms about, you know, when it talks about the Lord is a mighty tower, there's a sense that to be safe is to be high up. And there's so many reasons for that, right? When you're high up, it's harder for people to get to you. So you're physically safer. You can see things so you can prepare um, you, you have kind of an advantage in attack if you want to do something and thinking about how much that language is kind of embedded in our sense of security and insecurity was really fun for me and also gave me a way to kind of almost feel through, uh, insecurity myself. So I kind of started thinking like mm-hmm. when I feel insecure, um, what does that feel like? And a lot of times it feels like being, being lower down not knowing what's happening, not feeling like you have an advantage, feeling like you're caught behind. And mm. and so then actually kind of meditating on like, what do I need to feel 
safe? Like, how can I make myself feel like I have perspective? How can I make myself um, feel like there create safety for myself? Um, that was a really, that, that one was particularly illuminative for me um, to meditate on and yeah. to think about. And the picture I have too, when you say that is there's a certain, certain sense of security in having a good view. And when mm-hmm. we're down low, we can't see things. And I think we all struggle sometimes with only being able to see, you know, our hands in front of us and we can't mm-hmm. really see beyond. We don't have a good perspective of like 20 miles from here is this. Mm-hmm. And so I can, I, you know, to take the metaphor, I can see potential dangers and I can, mm-hmm. you know, look at weather on its way or whatever. But when you're down in the basement of a castle, you really are in a cave in many ways and you can't see more than your immediate surroundings. And I think we humans don't like that. We like to mm-hmm. know things. And yet God mm-hmm. in his grace and mercy does not let us know very much, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's funny too, because you connected it to one of my other favorite, which is the other chapter I was going to say, which was mm-hmm. the metaphor of light as knowledge and darkness as ignorance. So, <laughs> you know, um, Interesting. Yeah. which is also tied in that when you talked about being, you know, we, when we don't know things, we are in the dark. Um, and we would like to be illuminated or, you know, we talk about people uh, being lucid, right? Which is a word for light. That means if, if you know things, if you're a sharp thinker, then you, you're lucid. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, that was also an interesting um, one for me to seeing how pervasive that was and, and thinking about what it means to think about light as knowledge. How does that actually make us think about knowledge? Is knowledge just something that we acquire or is it actually kind of like points of orientation? Um mm-hmm. So, but yes, yeah, yeah, that, that both of those were, I really enjoyed writing and um, also just found a lot of, I, I would kind of think about the metaphor and then I would realize that actually there was like this whole theological discussion about it going on for years and years, which I guess is kind of the case with almost anything, but um, those ones were particularly yeah. interesting. Okay. I want to ask you about that in just a second, because I'm curious how you would unpack the idea of why we depend so much on metaphors, um, particularly when it comes to metaphysics, like, you know, theology mm-hmm. how and epistemology, how do we know what we know? But uh, because every chapter has the not in parentheses, right? So you are saying both that safety is a fortress and it's also not a fortress and that, mm-hmm. uh, what is it? Wisdom is light and it's also not light. Tell me about the knots. Like, how is it not a fortress and how is it not light? Yes. So that is, um, that was, that was kind of a, a fun thing to wind into the, to the um, chapters. And I think that just really boils down to what metaphor is. So Aristotle defines metaphor as I'm going to get the, I'm going to paraphrase this, but it's basically the carrying over, right? So to metaphor is a combination of Greek words that means to carry over um, mm-hmm. the strange properties of one thing to another, right? So when I say I am a tree, and I say I bear fruit or I, I'm feeling rooted, I'm carrying over the properties of that are that more properly belong to a tree to me, um, right? So I'm bringing what is proper to a tree to me. And um, that uh, kind of implicitly carries within it the idea that when I say I am a tree and I carry those properties to me, I also know that if I were just a tree, then then I, then there would be no use for the metaphor, right? I would just be a tree. And so there's kind of a sense in which metaphors fail at some point and break open, but that in doing that, they kind of allow us to pay more attention to what kind of thing I actually am. So Paul Ricoeur, who's this French uh, phenomenologist and philosopher writes about how 
writes about this kind of theory of metaphor, that metaphors require some element of kind of, uh, of breaking open or, or it's absurd. And that in that's precisely why metaphors work on us. They kind of make us affirm and then not affirm. And you could look at that in the Christian tradition in something like, um, Pseudodionysius, the Areopagite. So I'm getting very nerdy. Um, that's right. I love it. <laughs> with apophatic, apophatic theology, right? Which is this way of talking about God, where we we say anything we say about God is going to be in some way inadequate to the glory and um, completeness of God. Um, and so, yep. you know, he'll say God is a rescuer, um, and he'll describe the various ways in which God is a rescuer, but then he'll negate it. He'll He'll do the apophasis, the drawing back, because um, we both need words and images to understand things, but we also have this tendency to make those words and images kind of into idols or imaginations that don't mm-hmm. convey the true reality of things. And I think that's true of God, right? We can use words to describe God, but they can't ever completely understand him. But it's also true, I think, of our experiences. And I think sometimes if we let a metaphor go too far, if we start to think that the properties actually belong to the thing itself, we start to think that humans really are trees, then we might miss other aspects of humanity. And so there's this important kind of apophatic impulse in metaphors to uh, keep us from over-concretizing things like wisdom and love and safety. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think the kind of brackets not is is a way of keeping us from uh, of you know, committing heresies against God, of, of imagining that God is something less than what he is and thinking that he can be confined in our words. But it also helps us kind of attend to the mystery of human experiences and the nature of wisdom and the nature of love and the nature of safety, because it reminds us uh, to kind of keep a an appreciative stance of the ways that language can encapsulate our feelings, but never totally capture them. Sorry, that was very. <laughs> no, I loved it, rambled. and I'll bet you that's why we tend to mix metaphors as humans. Mm-hmm. Like both when we write, I find myself as a writer having to like watch myself. Like, okay, where am I going with this? This is weird, <laughs> and just probably way more colloquially in language. You know, we're mixing mm-hmm. metaphors left and right. We're in, you know, like you point out, we talk about we talk about life and metaphors in a way we don't even realize it. Like we talk about mm-hmm. knowledge as light, night, lightness, and I don't even think of that as a metaphor. I just assume it mm-hmm. is. Um, but I think you're spot on there because I find my, like, I actually love metaphors because it Mm. helps me, it gives me language to things I can't quite explain, or it helps me Mm. understand a thing. But I find as, you know, Kyle and I sit and have our morning coffee and we talk about the kids or we talk about our days and we use an analogy and a a metaphor to start just saying what it is we're trying to say. And then suddenly we're, you know, the day is like, I don't know, sailing on a on open seas. And then here I am talking about it's kind of like a three course meal. And then I'm going into, I don't know, <laughs> something else completely, you know, anachronous to what I just said. But we do, we humans do feel that limitation. I was actually just reading this morning, it had nothing to do with prepping for chatting with you about how we humans use finite language to talk about our infinite God, you know, and Hmm. so we don't even know how to word it. So when we talk about God being merciful, we still Hmm. think of that in human ways, like how are we humans merciful? Or when Hmm. we think of God as love, we almost can't understand what it means to be like God is love, God equals love. So we tend to think of that as God loves, as Hmm. an action or as an emotion and God 
that's actually not how God works. But we, I don't know, our brains would explode if we actually fully understood it. So I almost feel like metaphors are a mercy, you know, a, a mm-hmm. kind gift from God out of our human creativity to just almost like cushion the reality of what life really is, you know, I don't know. And a, um, you know, these are all these are all words that God has given us to to think with and pray with and talk about, and that's actually remarkable. It's remarkable that we can say anything about God, and um, and I think that the I open with a quote from um, it's in the epigraph. I think to the introduction is from a quote from a Billy Collins poetry uh, mm-hmm. poem where he says, "Speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world." And um, that's one of the things I wanted to kind of get across with the book is this sense that when we pay attention to what a three course meal feels like, or um, what it feels like when you're sailing, or what it's like when the sun comes up in the morning, that all of those things, that that plentiful imagery of the world kind of gives itself to us as a way to think and speak about our feelings and our experiences and our, um, and our, our, intuitions and inclinations about the God who is greater than the language that can contain him. And mm. um, so that's, that's one of the great things about metaphors is I think it just, when you think about them, you actually are thinking about the wonderful mystery of being alive and having experiences. And, you know, not to Sunday school answer this thing, but Jesus used metaphors all the time. You know, <laughs> he talked about be, us being lilies of the field. He talked about himself being a shepherd and we're sheep. So if Jesus yeah. used them, <laughs> exactly. <we> too. <laughs> also, if I can just sneak in something that I found funny. When I started writing the book, I didn't mean to do this, but I would like write about wisdom as light. And then I would find myself like at the end of the chapter being like, and the true light is Jesus. And it was really <laughs> like, I felt a little bit like I was giving the like, you know, Sunday school answer. And it reminded me of, I have this, um, I have this, what to talk about in the book, but I have this medieval bestiary, which was like, like an like like an like a you know Audubon guide to beasts from that that some <laughs> uh, monk wrote in the 12th century, and all of them it will like give these like scientific quote unquote scientific descriptions of an animal, and then it will be like, um, you know, a panther is this like multicolored creature with sweet breath, which is like clearly not what a panther is, but he got some bad info, um, yep. and and then it'll conclude with him being like, but the true panther is our Lord Jesus Christ, and. Um, <laughs> And I felt like I was doing that when I was writing the book because, you know, if, if God is the God who creates everything and if all kind of exists in this uh, relationship analogy to God, then s- somehow at the bottom of most of our experiences and at the bottom of most of these metaphors is some way in which God exists and reveals himself to us. So that was my kind of um, somewhere between mystical and Sunday school place that I ended up landing with a lot of the <laughs> chapters. <laughs> Right. I think you're just hinting at the sacramentality of life, right? That mm-hmm. that things mean things. And so if we mm-hmm. walk around believing that there's something underneath the layer of what we see in all mm-hmm. sorts of ways, not in a pantheistic way, like God is in everything, but that God's hand is in everything and has written everything and is in charge of everything, then it would only kind of make sense. And I find that true as an author that you have to like thread that line between 
you know what, I, I'm called to say true things. And therefore, this is just true. But also, the tendency to want to tie everything up into a pretty bow and like, therefore, don't worry <laughs> about life, because God is a fortress, and there's nothing to worry about. That's not really <laughs> what is meant by this, right? But I do want to ask you about your last metaphor, because it's it's the one I find myself talking about probably more than any other one. And I don't even mean to, like you said, um, we talk in metaphors without realizing it. And that's that idea of life is a journey. And I think of it so much like that, that I don't even, I, I have a hard time understanding how life is not a journey, mm-hmm. but I know what you mean. So tell me how we're not, how our lives aren't journeys. Um, I think that, uh, so that is one of the most pervasive um, metaphors. I think uh, one of the ways in which our lives are not journeys is I think we can have the idea that you can take a certain path and never go back. And that's actually something I was thinking about. And I think in time, we can't get time back, right? Um, but we can return to things, um, grow at different paces. There isn't. There are ways in which I think life isn't as linear as a journey would make it sound. Um, there are... Also ways in which the journey could, the metaphor of journey could make us not root and pay attention to uh, the life that we're given. So I think that's one of the interesting tensions in Psalm 1, that the two images it gives of the blessed person, one is of a tree that's rooted and bears fruit in this one place. And the other is blesses man who does, and it's talking about path, that he's walking, moving forward. And Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that is just a tension inherent in the human condition, both that we have this desire for something or some state or some um, place of uh, refuge that we don't feel like we currently are. So we journey and we long and we move and we are restless, as St. Augustine says. Um, but we are also creatures who do root and and uh, marry and make babies and and stay in one place. And these are these are kind of things that are wrestling in us. And I think even that desire for journey is predicated on a desire for home and rest and rootedness. And um, so I think those things kind of battle in us. And those are the ways in which life is both a journey and also not a journey. Uh, And I think a lot of that tension makes up what it is to be a human. And you connect the dots with travel, which I think is really cool mm-hmm. and a thing that, as you know, is is a thing that I wrestle with a lot, right? Because I actually feel like I live in that as a paradox. I love travel and I love being home and both are true. Um, and it mm-hmm. reminded me of this quote. I actually mentioned this in my travel book uh, from Terry Pratchett. I'm going to read it. It says, why do you go away so that you can come back, so that you can see the place you came from with new eyes and extra colors? And the people... And the people there see you differently too. Coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. And so to me, there is that connection between travel is Mm. that journey that's not necessarily linear. Maybe it's almost like a loop, you know, where we come back Mm. and then we go back out again and then we come back as well as a tree, like you said, the mixed metaphors. But you ask us at the end of it all to remember the longest trip we've ever been on Mm. and to unpack some of that stuff, like what made it hard, what made it good. Tell me about Mm -hmm. why you kind of went there. Uh, Well, one of the things I like about Augustine is Augustine uses like the, the 
journey metaphor is kind of like one of his main metaphors for the human life. But one of the things I like about it is that he, uh, and Sarah Stewart Croker talks about this very well in her book, but about how travel is something that's like uncomfortable for him. And, and, you know, if you think about travel in the fourth century Rome, like it was, it was not glamorous, right? It was, it jostled you, you got ill, you didn't know where you get good food or, you know, there was this sense of kind of discomfort. So I think that, um, thinking of the longest trip that I've been on, I, I do love, I love being places. I love being in Hong Kong or in Japan. I love being in San Antonio. I actually found, find the process of traveling like reasonably stressful. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think if you're conceiving of your life as a journey, thinking about the longest trip that you've been on can help you kind of almost make peace with the ways in which life is uncomfortable because it has these moments of great, um, enjoyment and satisfaction and new discoveries. But there's also a lot of travel that's just kind of ho-hum or difficult or um, unexpected and confusing. And I think sitting with that metaphor is a good way of preparing yourself for life and making peace with the kind of discomfort of, of travel through life while also celebrating the good moments along the way. Um, so yeah, that was just and then I guess just in general, it goes back to that sense of paying attention to our lives and and thinking about the plentiful imagery of our lives for helping us understand things. And and I think that travel is usually a very vivid, bright memory in our minds that can illuminate some of what it is to be a person. And I think sometimes we look back on that travel experience with rose-colored glasses. We remember the good things and not all the like the flight delays and the sleeping on the floor mm-hmm. in the airport. You know, we mm-hmm. think of the good things. And it reminds me a little bit of Pope Benedict's quote, uh, the world offers you comfort, but you are not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. <laughs> and I think that's what travel reminds us of. I think, you know, it's such a gift to be able to explore the world and see different places and to be fully present in some place. And yet, the older I get, the less I really can shake off the details and the arduous parts of travel, right? The uh, the long haul flights and the and the the packing and all the things, right? And yet, hmm. there's something about travel that makes us more human, makes us a little bit more of who we're meant to be. To kind of quote Augustine again, what's that about? Um, those who don't travel only read one page. And to bring it back to that Terry Pratchett quote, I think travel also helps us love where we are planted more. So mm. when you're out in the world, you, I mean, we've all had that experience of like you miss your own pillow, right? And you can't wait to get back home or, you know, almost like a Bilbo Baggins, like I want my things. Um, but to take that farther, like we are meant to be someplace, right? Mm-hmm. Most of us in life are not meant to just kind of live as vagabonds. We we tend to just need a place. We need to take that vow of stability, Right. And so I think going out to the world and taking those journeys invites us to appreciate the roots that we are called to, to dig deep into. And there I go with the mix, mixing of metaphors, but that's just the only <laughs> way I can explain it. Hmm. There you go. All right. So, Joy, as we wrap things up, I want to know something in your life that's adding a bit more beauty to your days. It can be anything big or small. So what are you enjoying these days? I will give you a very small answer, which is that I, so I've kept a journal for a long time. And a couple months ago, I did the artist way with my friend Elena. 
which mm-hmm. you had to do three morning pages every morning. So I decided to right. invest and buy myself a nicer pen. So I have a little Lamy fountain pen and it, uh, yeah. it just, it just brings me a lot of pleasure. Um, I like mm. that, you know, I can replace the cartridges. So it feels like I'm being a little more environmentally friendly. Um, and I like to think that it actually does make my journal pages a little more beautiful. And it also gave me a sense of like, no, I am a writer, so I can have a pen mm. and uh, yes. and support that vocation through my Lamy pen. So that's a very small thing, but it's brought me a lot of pleasure. And I like to think a little more yeah. beauty. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get the the beauty of a good pen on good paper. And it feels, mm. like you said, it fe- makes you feel like a writer, but it also just adds a certain... Um, groundedness to the little things in our days, you know, kind of like mm-hmm. when you just use the good China just for a normal Tuesday night dinner, it's that, <laughs> it gives it that quality. You know, you can write a grocery list with a fountain pen and it just makes it feel a little bit more like you're doing a thing, you know? So I think it's a great one. Um, my thing is, so recently Kyle and I and one of our kids rewatched the Downton Abbey movie, mm-hmm. the 2019 mm-hmm. movie, just for fun. We were just like, we wanted something that was kind of just lovely in on, mm. you know, in the midst of a lot of not upheaval, just in the midst of a lot of things on our plate, we just wanted something. And so we watched that. And uh, it reminded me that uh, Michelle Dockery, who plays Lady Mary and Michael, I forget his last name, who plays, I also forget his character name, but the head footman at by the mm. end of the show, they actually are in real life a musical duo. And they sing folk music together and they have, they don't even have a full album. They just have a lot of singles out in the world, but they're really good. And weirdly enough, the the genre that they say that they play in is Americana, which, you know, (laughs) the last thing you would think of as Downton Abbey actors is singing Americana, but it's really good. And so I have been enjoying this morning listening to their music and then, uh, I don't know if you do Spotify, but Spotify, you can do like. Their their duo name is Michael and Michelle. So that's mm. what they go by. But you can do Michael and Michelle radio. And mm. so it plays them, but also plays other people like them. So I've just had that on in the background. And to me, music has seasons. You know, like there are times for mm. certain music more than other times. And for me right now, that's just the season I'm in. I don't always love Americana or folk music. That's not my mm-hmm. like go-to. But there was just something that about today that said, no, listen to that. And it's just hmm. made my day more what it is. You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what has adding beauty to my day right now. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to go look it up. You <laughs> should. I think you would enjoy it. And I think anyone listening to this, if you just want something kind of different, but not weird different, just kind of lovely different, listen to them. <laughs> that's what I'd recommend. Okay. Joy, thank you so much for your time. I know you're all the way in Scotland. You've got a lot. When a book comes out, you're talking to all sorts of people all the time, but it was delightful to catch up and I want to do it in person next time. So uh, grateful for technology in this way that we can look at each other from whatever this is, 7,000 miles away. I'm also grateful. And thank you for, thank you for chatting with me about this book and, and for giving me something lovely to add to my life and my day with your music recommendations. <laughs> Absolutely. And listeners, I'll put all the stuff in the show notes, as you know. And to wrap it up, I'm Tish Oxenrider here with Joy Clarkson. You can find all the episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com, where you can also help support the show by picking up the next round of drinks. Because remember, this is free for you to listen to, but it's not free for me to make. And many of you have been uh, very generous lately, so we appreciate it. You can find me and all my stuff at tishoxenrider.com. Joy, where can people find you mostly online? 
Um, you can go to joyclarkson.com, which will redirect you to my Substack, and then I'm yeah. on all the 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 platform formerly known as as Twitter for a, the time being, but may eventually depart, and Instagram and Facebook. Cool. Yeah, I'll put a link to all that in the show notes, but you can also just link to your website. That's the way it is for me too. Uh, all right, guys, you know the drill. Kevin McLeod did the music. Kyle Oxenreiter did the editing. Joy and I did the talking. We will be back here with you again soon. So in the meantime, thank you so much for being here. Bye.